We are so glad you guys are, are here this morning, here at our Battlefield campus, and good morning to all you guys out at Buchanan. It's always great to, to have you with us. Those of you who are watching online, we'd love to have you a part of our worship experience. You know, we have decided uh, to do something a little different this year at Easter. We've decided to just really, really slow down and sort of pick this story uh, apart. And I feel like sometimes we rush through Easter. So this Never Lost series is our Easter series. And we're going to be looking at really some shadows. We'll see that today, some shadows of this great story of resurrection. And we've entitled this series Never Lost because here's the truth of the matter. Our God's never lost whether you realize that or not. And we're going to see that. And I hope as we take a look at some of these stories, it's going to really encourage you and, and grow your faith. I have to say this. When I was uh, younger, one of, the, one of the guys that I loved to watch play on Sunday afternoons was John Elway. Any of you John Elway fans uh, here? John Elway, yeah, Bulls and Elway fan. The thing about Elway is uh, he didn't really get started till the fourth quarter, but I always missed that because back in the day, I, I was telling folks this. Like, if you grew up in church back in the day, it was intense, man. Like, Sunday morning, you had Sunday school. Then you had big church, we called it. And then you came back for what we called training union, which was actually Sunday night, Sunday school, and then you had worship, right? again. So like it was a full day. And so I can just remember like John Elway was just getting going. It was time to head back to church. So I, I, I never got to see it. You just kind of get home and you see the highlights of a comeback. And it was like, he just, he just never lost. Even though it looked like he was going to, he, he came back. Of course we know he, he did some. And then if you, if you followed basketball, uh, during the glory days of the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman. Like if, if you watch, those, watch that team play, you never even had to start watching the game to the last four minutes of the game because everything before that, it didn't matter at all. They had, had zero relevance. It was just the last four minutes and they would come back and they would win. It was almost like they never lost. But as we think about that, I mean, and, and really take a look at our relationship with our God, we serve a God who has never lost. And I think that it means more to me right now than it's ever meant in my life because these are some of the most difficult days that we've ever been in. And people are, you hear people say they're losing their faith. People are discouraged. People are down. And so I think this Easter, I believe God's going to do some things in our hearts and lives like never before. I'm more excited than I've, I've ever been relative to that. And so if you have your Bible, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to go back and we're going to look at a story in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 22, obviously the first book in the Bible. Even if you're, you're new to church, if you pick up in the book of Genesis, that's the easiest book to find. And, and we're, going to, we're going to start. And the story that we're going to look at today takes place 2,000 years. Let me say that again. Takes place two. 2,000 years before the birth of, of Christ. And so it is a story, just to give you a little bit of background, if you grew up in church, uh, you, you might know this, but if you didn't have the privilege of growing up in church, which so many folks didn't, we're introduced to a character here who's a central character in the book of uh, Genesis. His name is Abraham. So where we are at this point in the story, there's been creation, there was the fall, we saw that last week when mankind, Adam and Eve rebelled, and then we had the flood. And then God is going to bring about a, a covenant or a promised people. He's going to do something through a separate group of people that are really going to show his glory, his power, and his goodness to all the nations. And he's going to start that group of people with a guy who was barren and unable to have kids. How's that? 
right? That doesn't look like the best candidate to be the father of a great nation. A 75-year-old dude, him and his wife unable to bear children, and God makes an incredible promise to Abraham, and he says, man, you're going to have so many descendants, it'll be like the sands on the seashore, it'll be like the stars in the sky, and Abraham believed that promise, and the scripture says it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, he had a right standing with God because he believed the promises of God, and so it takes place even later. Our story in Genesis chapter 22, a lot goes down uh, from the time that God made that promise. 25 years later, God finally brings that promised son, Isaac, and that's where we're going to pick up the story today. So Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, buckle in because there's a lot I believe God wants you to see. I hope you have a pen. I hope you can take some notes. And if you mark your Bible, which we encourage you to do, just use it like a life textbook. There's going to be a lot of underline in here. Is that all right? You guys ready to go? All right. Six of you. That's good. It's better than last service. Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Can I just tell you? Uh, that that's a, a golden thread that's going to run through this passage. And we could do a whole message just on the testing of God. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, your faith is going to be tested. And so just, just real quickly, why does God test us? God tests us so he can grow our faith. And God also tests us to reveal the genuineness of our faith. But I'm not going to preach on the testing of God. I just wanted to show you that was, that was, that was there, right? Some, somebody's like, okay, thanks. Sometime later, he said to, to Abraham, or God calls to Abraham, and Abraham replies, here I am, right? And in the Hebrew, it's not like Abraham is not saying, this is my location, God, because God already knows that. When he says, here I am, uh, that really means this. Abraham is saying, God, I am willing, I am able, whatever it is you're asking my yes is on the table. So that's what he means by that. And so that gives us a great picture of another golden thread that runs through this passage. And you see it over and over again. And we could preach all day on this. And it's a really a picture of what authentic faith looks like. Because if you grew up in the South with, with, you know, biscuits and gravy and Jesus on Sunday morning, most people in the South would say that faith is a belief in God. Right? Well, here's the issue. Most people in the South believe in God, but what we see is authentic faith is authentic faith is a belief that obeys God, right? Loves God enough, trusts God enough that they obey God. And that's what you see in Abraham. You see his obedience, right? And so we could talk about that, but, but we're not. Uh, we're we're going to look at, at, at the third golden thread, and that's where we're going to spend our time uh, today. This story, one of the things I love about this story, this story... Is, is, is really, it's a forerunner to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a dress rehearsal, if you will. And so for the next 30 minutes, like we're going to take a look at this story. We're going to kind of pull it apart verse by verse. And I want to show you some amazing things in this story that here's what God is doing. 2,000 years before he would send his son, he shows his hand. He tips his hand and he tells us what he is going to do. Because listen, we live in a day today where there's so much doubt. And I, I, I hear, uh, I read articles of people kind of decommitting to Christ or, you know, falling away from the church or because of doubt in the midst of this pandemic and all the things that are going on in our, in our culture. We live in a culture where so many people are turning their backs on God. And so one of the things that this story will do, man, if you'll let God do it, this story will so encourage you and it will so bolster your faith and your confidence in who our God is, right? And it will also just remind us that, listen, this story of resurrection is absolutely true. And so if Jesus literally did die a physical death and raised from the grave, he's the only person who's ever done that on his own, then I'm going to come under his authority. So that's a very important thing. So this is just a dress rehearsal, right? So here we go. Verse 2, then God said, take your, take your son, your only son, maybe underline that phrase, only son, 
uh, because it's going to sound a whole lot like uh, John chapter 3, verse 16, the most, po- the most popular verse in the, in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? That whoever believed in him should not perish. So Isaac is this only son. And what you're going to see as we study this, the text today is we're going to see this comparison between this, this son of a promise, Isaac, born to Abraham when he was 100 years old. We're going to compare him to Jesus who would come 2,000 years later, right? We're going to see some amazing things. Then take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Now that stops us in our tracks right here. Now at this point, Abraham is leaving, living in the southern part of Israel in a place known as Beersheba. I've been there multiple times. It's sort of a desolate place, but one thing that it has a lot of is it has a lot of mountains. In other words, you wouldn't have to travel very far if God says, hey, Abraham, I want you to make a sacrifice. And I just want you to sacrifice it on this mountain range. I mean, Abraham's got a 15-minute walk to mountains, right? But, but God says, I want you to take him to the region of Moriah. Now, that's interesting. And why is that so interesting? It's because archaeologists, Bible scholars, theologians all agree that where Abraham set out to, this region, this range of hills known as Moriah, just outside of modern-day Jerusalem, is in fact the location of what we know as Calvary, where Jesus would have gone to the cross. That's a pretty interesting thing, isn't it? Right? So... Take your son, your only son, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now, again, you have to understand this story. This is a test of of Abraham's faith. Verse 3, early the next morning. Would you do me a favor, like uh, two of you are underlining. I'm a Bible underliner if you're, you know, early the next morning. Again, every word in Scripture, I want you to see every word in Scripture is there for a reason. There is a purpose in it. God wants to show you something. I mean, this was a difficult command for Abraham to go and do, right? He didn't. Do you think Abraham understood all the implications of what he was about to do? No. I mean, it, it, it would be thousand. It will be two thousand years before that aha moment comes. And sometimes that's the problem why we feel like we have lost in the situation because what God is doing in your life right now, you may in the life of a believer, you may not understand what you're going through or why you're going through. It may be two, three generations in the future where that aha moment comes, where God is using it in a powerful way. Does that make some sense? I mean, it'll be two thousand years before the dots are connected. But look what it says early the next morning. Abraham obeys. I want to eradicate this, this phrase uh, from, from our lives. I hear people say all the time, I'm struggling in my faith. And really, I want to push into that. What does it mean to struggle in our faith? I think most of the time when we're struggling in our faith, we're delaying obedience to God's known will in some area of our life. Right? And Abraham, it just says early the next morning, Abraham just gets up, saddled his donkey, has his coffee, boom, he's off. Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. Now, again, I grew up in church. I just had the privilege of growing up in church. So anytime it was Abraham and Isaac's story, like I kind of knew the story, but I just kind of saw it in my mind. And I saw Isaac like a three-year-old little dude, like a toddler going with his dad. Anybody see it like that? Nobody, just me? All right. Well, that's not really the case. Isaac most likely is as old as 15, maybe even as old as 25 years old when he goes with his father. You see, he's, he's, not, a, he's not a toddler. That's going to be significant for us to, to understand. So Abraham and Isaac and their servants head to Moriah. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Verse 4, on the third day. Might want to stop and underline there. Is that significant? I'd say so. It had been three days since uh, God told Abraham that he was to sacrifice his son uh, Isaac. So in Abraham's mind, his son Isaac had already been gone for three days. And again, 
That's just this foreshadowing of the Messiah laying in the grave for three days before uh, resurrection. So on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Like I, I could talk about this for hours and some of you are like, please, no. You know, if you really study Abraham's life, this is so fascinating. God never gives Abraham really just all the directions in full details. He just tells him to go and he gives him kind of a direction and Abraham just heads out that way and then, and then God just sort of clarifies his plan. And that, that's just so true. Man, as we just start moving in obedience to God, you start moving in obedience to God and God will reveal things to you. Uh, our college students, can I just tell you this? I know you're going to love this. You know, I, this is, if you want to find out, how do you find somebody you're going to spend the rest of your life? How do you, how you find a mate for your life? Is that a fair question? So we're like, it's awkward. I can't believe you're talking about that. I've said this for years, and I have seen this play out dozens and dozens of times. Dozens. Of, I'm an old dude now. This works, right? You just start serving Jesus. Like, just whatever opportunities you have to serve the Lord, serve him, and then you, you just kind of watch. You kind of see who's kind of serving along beside you. You just sort of see who's kind of running, running with you. And then, you know what? Then you ask them, why don't we run together? That's kind of a cool thing. I can just tell you story after story of folks who just did that. They weren't looking for somebody. They were just following Jesus, and God just brought somebody because they were moving. God uses that momentum in your life. Does that make sense? Some of you are like, please quit talking to us. Talk to somebody else. Good. I'll leave you alone for a little bit, but I'll be back. Don't worry. <laughs> Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself, uh, and he, he himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them went on together. So here's, here's Abraham and Isaac, and they're moving up a hillside called Moriah, and Isaac, watch this, Isaac has wood on his back as he's walking up Moriah. Does that give you goosebumps? That's pretty wild, isn't it? Because 2,000 years later, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would walk up that same hillside with wood on his back, right? If you're a skeptic, I'm glad you're here. If you're a skeptic, I'm glad you're watching. At some point, this happens 2,000 years before the main event. At some point, you just have to say, man, that is a lot of coincidences, right? Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Like, this is a question that Abraham is hoping that he doesn't have to answer. Like, and, and Isaac, again, he kind of gets it. He's like, hmm, like, I know the way the sacrificial system goes down, and I think we've got all the elements except the main element, right? And, and he asked his dad the question. Abraham answered, parents, well, I want you to see this. I want you to see this. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, and the two of them went on together. Abraham had such a strong belief in the promises of God. Now, he didn't know exactly how God was going to bring that about, but he had this super strong belief in the promises of God, and his belief in the promises of God were passed on to his son, and you're going to see a radical difference that it makes in, in his son's life. Now, when they reached the place, verse 9, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there. So here they are on Moriah, Calvary, or Golgotha. And there he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. This is at least a 15-year-old dude. Now, I've raised two boys. There's a moment in every young boy's life when he thinks, I can take the old man. Let me just be honest with you. There's no question in my mind Isaac was there. 
His dad is 115. He can outrun him or he can overpower him. Do you see that? That's just obvious. But he doesn't. He willingly lays on that altar. Why does he willingly lay on that altar? Because he trusted in the faith of his father. Don't tell me it doesn't make a difference. He knew his father believed in the promises of God. And and because he saw such a strong faith in his father, it made a difference in his life. And this teenage boy to a young adult lays down on this altar. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. I mean, this is rich and thick with drama, isn't it? We're hanging on every word. But the angel of the Lord called out to him, to Abraham again from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, in the same response, here I am, meaning, God, I'm willing to do whatever you tell me next to do. And he is sure hoping it's going to be some good news coming in right here, right? He answers this one pretty quick, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. What did we say about tests? They don't just grow our faith, they reveal our faith. And really what God is doing in Abraham, because think about this. I want you to think about Abraham and Sarah for just a moment. I mean, they're 100 years old when they have their first child. That's wild, isn't it? Right? They have their first child at 100, and they live in a culture, like, even for us, that's crazy. I mean, Abraham's a wealthy guy at this point, so for the last 15 years, all he's really had to do is play with Isaac, right? He didn't have to clock in, right? So he loves this boy. And they lived in a culture where everybody up to this point believed the reason they weren't able to have children is because they were cursed by God, right? So can you imagine how painful that was? And now they have this child and he's asked to lay this child down to serve God over, the, over that child. That was a tough thing. I mean, God is doing something to reveal his faith. Now listen, this gets no amens and nobody wants to hear this in the church today. But it's true. God desires to be supreme in your life. He desires for our love for him to be beyond anything else in this world even our children. And to that, we would ask a question like, why? And we're going to see the answer to that because in the irony of ironies, that's the greatest thing we can do for our kids or for anybody else, right? If you love your spouse more than you love Jesus, you'll destroy your marriage. If you love your children more than you love Jesus, you'll damage your children. If you love your career more than you love Jesus, you will destroy your career. That's That's the deal. And so here's the test that he gives him. Abraham passes the test. Verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. I'm a Bible, self-proclaimed Bible nerd. I love this. The ram was caught by his horns. I just believe this. I believe every word in scripture is there for a reason, right? And we may not fully understand every word. It may be years as we grow in our understanding of scripture that we understand more. But it says this ram was caught by his horns. I wonder why that's there. Could it be because of this reason? One of the prophecies of the Messiah, when the Messiah would be crucified, when the Messiah would die for the sins of the people, not a bone of his body would be broken. And this ram is caught by his horns, and so his body isn't broken. His body isn't damaged. And so Abraham goes over. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, God will Jireh, God will provide. And can I just remind you of something today? In the midst of a difficult season, a difficult stretch in all of our lives, we still serve a God who provides. Do you believe that? He's able in the most difficult circumstances and situations. Now, here's what I'm going to do for the next 15 minutes. You guys got 15 minutes in you? If you don't, you can leave. We'll look at you and think less of you. That's the way we'll do it here. You can, 
You can even click off if you're watching online, but guess what? We have some analytics that tell us who you are and when you click off. <laughs> and Todd will be calling you. First thing, number one, here, here's this comparison between, uh, between Abraham. I, I want to show you between Isaac and Jesus. First of all, a comparison I think we just can't miss. The first one is there's a supernatural birth, right? I mean, with, with Isaac, his, his mom is 100 years old when she gives birth to him. Would you, would, would, would you call that supernatural? No, I would. Right? I think it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, when Sarah's walking around in her seventh month of pregnancy, I mean, people are looking at her and they're laughing. And in fact, Sarah's not offended by that because she laughed too. In fact, that's what she named, that's what Isaac means, a son of laughter. And Sarah's like, <laughs> it's crazy, ain't it? Yeah. Right? A hundred. But this is a supernatural birth. Genesis 20. She didn't laugh like I laughed. That was a weird laugh. She didn't laugh like that. Genesis 21, verse 1, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Boy, that is so true. God always keeps his word. Do you believe that? He's faithful to his word. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised. So here's what we take from that. It's a supernatural birth of Isaac, and I believe Isaac was a supernatural birth, is a shadow of the supernatural birth of Emmanuel, Jesus, the God-man, the Christmas story, Right? I mean, Mary, what do we know about Mary? She'd never been with a man. She was a virgin, right? But yet she is conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, so that is a supernatural birth. So Isaac's birth was supernatural. Would you agree, disagree? Come on. I agree. Jesus' birth was supernatural. Agree, disagree? Agree. What's the point? Your birth can be supernatural. And you're like, dude, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Well, wait a minute. Jesus, Jesus said this. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. To that, people are like, weird, Jesus. Like, I don't, I don't know how I can be born again. I'm not getting back in my mama's belly. That's, that's weird. But really, that phrase, being born again, what Jesus is saying is being born from above. He's talking about a supernatural birth, and that is the message of the gospel, that all of us are dead because of our sin and separated because of our sin and our rebellion, but when we put uh, faith and trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, then we are born from above, and there is a supernatural birth that we can experience. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Let's look at the second thing. So there's a supernatural birth. You see the agreement there? 2,000 years ahead of time. It's as if God is calling his shot and saying, this is what I'm going to do. Do you think that's cool? I really do. Right? Number two, there's a familiar location, right? The comparison here. These comparisons are meant to really grow and strengthen our faith. Strengthen our faith in what? In the resurrection of Messiah. And why is that so important? Because if Jesus was bodily resurrected, then everything else is possible now, right? You see that? It will anchor your soul. I want you to see this. Understanding the resurrection of Jesus Christ will anchor your soul amongst the storms of doubt that are going to buffet you for the rest of your life. Genesis 22, verse 2, that God says, take your son, your only son who you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Moriah, I believe, as well as many others, the place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, was going to sacrifice Isaac, is the place that Jesus was sacrificed for your sin. So Isaac was at Moriah. Do you believe that? The Bible says he was. Jesus was at Moriah. I believe that. And you were at Moriah. Some of you are like, nope. Hadn't been to the Holy Land. We went to Destin yet last year at, at, at spring break, but we were going to go, but we didn't, what with the COVID and all. You've been there. No, we, we, we haven't. 
Check our passport. We have it. You have. I never will forget uh, several years ago, we landed in Tel Aviv with a group of people, and, and we got, came out of the airport, and we were standing outside the airport waiting on the bus to pick us up, and a lady who was with us, she said, you know, she said, this is the weird, she said, this is so weird what I'm about to say, and you're, you're, you're going to think this is so strange. She says, it feels like I've been here before. She says, it almost feels like I'm home. And I said, that's because you have. And she's like, no, I haven't. Here's the point. 2,000 years ago when Christ was crucified on the cross, the sin debt of all mankind was placed upon the Son. You were there. You were there. Every sin I have ever committed and ever will commit was poured out on the Son. Isaac went to Moriah. Jesus went to Moriah. And we were at Moriah. There's a lot of significance here. Let's look at the third thing. I want to try to tie this together. You guys still hanging in there online? You still with us? Obviously, if you're hearing this, you are. Number three, a willing sacrifice. Look, look at verse 9 again. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Isaac was a willing sacrifice. He willingly laid down in obedience to God's command on his life. His father could have been 115 to 120 years old. He could have outran him, Isaac, or overpowered him, but he didn't. He willingly submitted. There is something there that we need to see, something there. You know, this always bothers me. I'm, I know I'm running out of time, but watch this. This always bothers me. People would say, especially skeptics about Jesus, they would say, you know what? Jesus never intended to be crucified. He came to be a good teacher and show us a lot of great truths and how to live, but he just got caught up in some sort of religious, political uh, battle there in uh, Jerusalem and had his life taken from him. No, he didn't. Jesus was a willing sacrifice. He didn't have his life taken. He gave his life. John chapter 10, verse 17, this is what Jesus says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Listen, you go back and you study the gospels and there's these moments where Jesus says something or does something and the crowd's furious and they kind of close in on him and then he's he's just gone, right? Just walks right through them. I mean, even when the soldiers came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they asked if he was Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am, and they fall backwards in power. I mean, this is the same one who spoke everything that we see into existence through the power of his word. His life wasn't taken. His life was given. He was a willing sacrifice. Isaac being a willing sacrifice foreshadows that. Both Isaac and Jesus willingly marched up Moriah with wood on their back. Isaac was released. Watch this. Isaac was released. Why? Because Jesus would ultimately one day stay on the altar. One of the top ten questions that I get from folks is is this. How are people in the Old Testament saved? How are people in the Old Testament born again? Are they saved uh, because of their obedience to the law? The answer to that is no. Do you understand this? Obedience to the law was never meant to be a means of our salvation. It was always to show us that we needed a what? Needed a Savior. Because here's what we all have in common with the law. None of us can keep it. Right? You sped on the way over here today. Right? But there's always a guy when you bring that up, you say, well, they'll give you nine miles over the speed limit. You know that guy? Like, I know a police officer. Everybody knows a police officer. I know a police officer. They give you nine miles over. You broke the law. Right? 
We all do that. So we need, we, need, we, need, we need a Savior. So how is someone in the Old Testament saved? They're saved the same way we are, by faith in the Messiah. We look back to what Jesus has done to bring about our salvation. Abraham was looking ahead to what Jesus had done for our salvation, right? So Jesus stayed on the altar so that you and I could go free. Does that make sense? Does that help you? Jesus willingly stays on the altar. Why? So that you could go free. You know, think about this real quick. I'm almost done. You know, the only person that Jesus refused to save, there's a lot of talk today about who Jesus, who Jesus died for. You know, the only person Jesus refused to save, himself, when he willingly gave his life. So we have a supernatural birth. Do you see it in this story? I'm asking, we'll let you out quicker if you'll answer. Supernatural birth, yeah. Familiar location, yeah. Willing sacrifice, Isaac and Jesus, yeah. Worthy substitute. Let's look at this as we come to a close. Turn the corner heading for home. Genesis 22, 13. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So the ram becomes a substitute. It's a substitute for Isaac. This is what theologians call the substitutionary atonement of Christ. You want to look smart in your small group? Break that out on them this week. Substitutionary atonement of Christ. They'll have you lead the group next week, right? It just really means that one greater than stands in and makes a covering for you, pays a penalty for you. If, see, here's our problem with the substitute. In our culture, when, they, when we think about a substitute, we typically think of something lesser than. Now, like if you're a substitute teacher, that, that's, a, that's an amazing thing, right? Like when a sub's there, like everybody's like, a sub's there, do what we want. Or if you're into athletics, there's the starters and then there are the substitutes. And they're like second string, right? Can I tell you something? Jesus is our substitute, but he's not second string. He's MVP. Let me try to explain it to you this way. Let's just say, let's just say this is a church league basketball game, right? And uh, we, New Vision got a church league basketball team. Pastor Brady's going to play. 50 years old, about that much overweight. And uh, I'm out there starting lineup because you're going to start the pastor, right? You're not going to put the pastor on the bench. You'll start the pastor, right? Kim, if you were coaching, you'd start the pastor. Absolutely. Absolutely. You'd start the pastor. But then but after three trips up and down the court, I raise my hand, which means what? Need a sub. Subbing in, right? And so let's just say it's my story. I can have whoever I want to in my story, right? It's a beautiful thing about being a preacher. Let's sub in. Let's sub in um, Kevin Durant. Let's just say Kevin Durant, right? Maybe the greatest basketball player on the planet right now, right? We sub him in. Let's just say we're playing, I don't know, World Outreach. I don't know, whatever. So we're playing. Yeah. And so Pastor Brady subs out. <laughs> Kevin Durant subs in. And like I'm over there sitting on the bench. I'm like, I'm gas. I'm like getting, getting my breath. I'm like, guys, I'm ready to go back in. They're like, no, you're good. Just rest. <laughs> just rest. He's got it. Kevin's got it. He's got you. Just let him play, right? Like that's a better substitute, isn't it? I mean, you sit back over there after a couple trips down, and you think, okay, he does have it. Yeah, we just rest in that. Can I just tell you, Jesus is the perfect substitute. Can I tell you something about humanity? Please listen. Most people have been running from difficult situations in their life, and you can escape some bad situations. You can escape some bad locations and environments. You can run from some bad relationships. But you can't escape yourself. You're stuck with your past, with all of your failures and inconsistencies 
You can't run from it. That's why we need a substitute. One who would sub in for us and what he accomplished, who he was and what he did, now comes down to us. And when you recognize, listen, listen, listen. When you recognize Christ as your substitute, that's when life gets good. It will lead you to worship like you've never done before. Can you just imagine how Abraham and Isaac went down the mountain after the substitute? Isaac was like, Dad, I thought you were going to do it. Man, that got crazy. And then God spoke, and then there was a substitute, and it was a sacrifice. And now, I mean, can you imagine those guys going down and they're worshiping the Lord because of what happened? I mean, can you get it in your mind's eye? That was some trip down the mountain. But that is what has happened to you and me. If you are in Christ, you were dead, and there was a substitute who stood in for you, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, and took the death that should have been yours. That should lead us to worship. It should also lead us to rest. Church, listen, this last year there's been so much anxiety, so much discouragement, so much fear. One of the things that we need to do if we're in Christ is we need to stop and rest in the sufficiency of our substitute. It will change everything. And then lastly, sacrifice, meaning we worship when we recognize our substitute we rest and then we sacrifice. What does that mean? What are you saying? You're saying, this is what always confuses me about you preachers. You're talking about grace and forgiveness and what Jesus Christ has done. And now you've kind of loaded me up with some works that I needed to, so I'm confused. What are you talking about? No, 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 you missed it. I don't sacrifice so I can be forgiven. I sacrifice because I'm forgiven. Do you see that? It's what motivates me. Paul said it this way, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy, looking back on what the substitute has done, offer your body as a living sacrifice. I love that. You ought to underline that if you have your Bible open. A living sacrifice. You don't have to die on the altar because Jesus already has. But we live our life sacrificially, holy and pleasing to God. This is our true and proper worship. Let's finish it up. There's a supernatural birth. I think we see it in this story. Comparing Isaac to Jesus. There's a familiar location, Moriah Calvary, a willing sacrifice, Isaac and Jesus, a worthy substitute, the ram caught in the thicket without a bone broken, and the Lamb of God 2,000 years later who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist called Jesus when he saw him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, a worthy substitute. And last, a victorious ending. And everybody loves a good ending, right? I mean, but both of these stories have an amazing ending against all odds. And that's our God who's never lost. But most of us, most of us live our lives in the shadow of doubt. In the shadow of broken relationships, broken promises. Pain that doesn't seem to fit with a loving God. And we live our life in the shadow of those doubts and discouragement. But here's what happens. And here's why I believe Genesis chapter 22 is in the Bible. 2,000 years before Jesus would come. One of the reasons. Because it is a dress rehearsal for resurrection. And when you believe in the resurrection of Christ, 
that will begin to shine light into all those shadows of doubt in your life. Listen, when you're prone to struggle with doubt and discouragement, we go back and we're reminded of the power of resurrection for our belief in resurrection. And it begins, watch it, it begins to shed light into all these other areas. Genesis 22, 4, we have to read it one more time before we head to the house. On the third day, Abraham looked up. I love it. He saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey. In other words, this is a journey. The boy and I need to travel alone. Kind of like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as the disciples say back. Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we'll come back even though it had never been done before. Why? Because he believed in the promises of his God, that God was going to make him a great nation through Isaac. Can I tell you something? Victory in your life. We serve a God who's undefeated. He's never lost. But most of his children, us, live with so much defeat in our lives personally. Why is that? Because victory is a result of believing in the promises of God, trusting in the promises of God, trusting in the precepts or the commands of God, even in the most difficult challenges of our life. That's where victory lies. You see, the only thing that will drive you onward in your faith journey is the confidence that you have in the faithfulness of our God who has never lost. So here's the question. So what? Right, that's what some of you are asking. Like I came today, I did my hour. You know, you talked about some story that happened 4,000 years ago. I see, yeah, yeah, there's yeah, some similarities. I'll give you that. So what? I think there's a lot of so what's, but here's one I believe. It shows that our God has never lost a battle. And because of that, if you would trust him, he will never lose you. In the midst of unbelievable circumstances and situations, and I don't know what's coming in your future, but to commit to a God who's never lost means one thing I know for sure, that he will never, ever lose you. And that will anchor your soul. Paul said, for I'm convinced in Romans 8 that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, not most, I love that, any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our resurrected Lord. That's a so what. That's a so what that you can build your life upon. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you that you have never lost And Father, we can rest those that have placed faith and trust in you that you will never lose us. And we don't read you through the circumstances and situations of our day, but we read you through the unchanging promises of your word. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.